Uh, but I want you to imagine for a moment that you're being interviewed for a job as a pastor of a church. You may have never been in that situation before. I've only ever been in that situation once. Uh, but imagine you're being interviewed as a pastor, and the church is in this really cool city that's kind of at the international crossroads. Think of the, uh, a Singapore or a London or a New York City. It's a city kind of bursting with brilliant and beautiful and young people. All the latest and greatest ideas are kind of kind of flowing through this, this town. It's the sort of city you could go to to really make a name for yourself. Uh, and so far the interview's gone well and kind of you're meeting with the church kind of selection committee or the elders or whoever it is and you're getting the vibes that they're not so secretly keen on you taking this job. And as the interview draws to the close, it comes to kind of that dreaded moment that every interview comes to, which is, oh, we've had enough, uh, we've asked all the questions that we've wanted to ask, have you got any questions for us? And it's that point you wish you had spent the extra five minutes before the interview thinking of some intelligent questions to ask them. But you're on the spot, you're feeling pretty good, and you go, yeah, actually, I do have some questions for you. So you ask them, so tell me, what is your church like? Are you a united church? You know, kind of all heading in the same direction. And they kind of look at each other sheepishly and say, well, the factions in our church are very united. They're, they're very united, and they start nodding enthusiastically. There's actually about six or seven little house churches, and those little house churches are super tight. They're super tight. They're very loyal to their tribe, but actually, they they don't play very well with others, unfortunately. You think, okay, this is going to be interesting. Uh, These little groups uh, and those in them, those in them, they get along okay with each other. Yeah, 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 they're great. They're just like little families. They're really close, but you know, like some families, you know, there's always a little bit of trouble in just the usual family stuff. Just the stuff you would expect in families, you know, suing one another. You know, but that's that, that's but that's what the law courts are there for to help us work through these things. You know, okay, all right, this is interesting. So tell me, what kind of pastoral issues are you facing in this church? What have, what's come up? More nervous looks of the panel. And they say pastoral issues. Well, just the normal stuff. You know, I'm sure the stuff that happens in every church life. Um, probably nothing you've never seen before. Okay, sounds shifty. Give me some examples. What sort, what sort of things have you faced in the last 12 months? Well, you know, there was this one guy, uh, he left his wife and now he's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And, you know, we're finding that a little bit tricky just to know how to love him through that, to know how to, how to express to him that he's still one of us and he's accepted even though he's decided to kind of pursue this alternative sexual arrangement. And, you know, we've got that classic problem of the students, you know, the one where the students go off and they sleep with the prostitutes down at the temple and, and they're saying that's part of their freedom in Christ now. You know, that old chestnut of students and prostitutes, just the usual stuff. Oh, and there are some other guys who are going down to the temple to worship demons, and there's some gender confusion. And recently, when we got together for the Lord's Supper, uh, the rich guys came in, and they ate and drank uh, first, and they got kind of blind drunk, and then they kicked out the poor guys who came a little bit later because they had to be out working in the fields. And there's some disagreement about speaking in tongues and prophecy and spiritual gifts, and people are confused about the end of the world. And there's some people here who don't even believe the resurrection is a thing, but apart from that, we're all good. Well, if after all of that, you decide to take the job and they'd kind of lean over the table and shake your hand and say, welcome to Corinth. It's good to have you here. Because that's a description of just some, not even all, just some of the things that are taking place in this church in Corinth. 
It seemed that everywhere you looked, new issues were rising up, new difficulties were rising, their ugly heads, factionalism, confusion about gender and sexuality, divisions over spiritual gifts, denial of the resurrection. You didn't have to look very far to see these things in Corinth. And to be honest, you don't have to look very far in the wider church today to see some of these issues present as well. In some sense, 1 Corinthians could have been written last week. Uh, but if you dig around in the book of 1 Corinthians, if you dig around in these issues that Paul is addressing as he, as he writes to this young church, you begin to see that these problems, despite them all looking so different and in so many different areas of church life, Paul can see that they have one source. All these different problems have one underlying issue that is ruining this church. And the issue is this. The issue is that they have misunderstood the gospel of Jesus. Now, they're Christians. Some of them on the outside are very impressive Christians, but beneath the surface, they have not come to terms with the full implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus and what it means for them as a people and what it means for them as a church. Under, under the surface, they have not fully understood how they have been saved and what they now have now that they've been saved. And so Paul, in this letter of 1 Corinthians, he writes to this church to help them sort out their problems. And what we'll see time and time again over the next four weeks is that the solution is to remind them of the gospel. The solution is to remind them of the good news about Jesus. And we see the first issue that Paul decides to kind of tackle in this letter is the problem of divisions within the church. And more specifically, that the way that groups have formed around certain personalities... Uh, if you've got your Bible there, it'd be great if you can have it open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, take a look at verses 11 to 12. In verses 11 to 12, see how Paul describes what is going on. Verse 11, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, and still another, I follow Christ. Now here Paul doesn't say what it is about these leaders that they're dividing over, but we can probably take a pretty good guess as to the things that they're, 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 they're splitting hairs over. Maybe some are loyal to Paul because he was the original church planter there. Uh, we can read about this in Acts chapter 18. Uh, Paul founded this church, it was his first preacher, the evangelist, the church planter who kicked things off in Corinth. Uh, and unusually for Corinth, um, Paul stuck around as the church pastor for over a year. Usually he was just there for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and then moved on, but he stuck around. And so what this might mean is that, humanly speaking, there might be a lot of people in that church who owe their faith to Paul. And I guess it's understandable that there's a kind of a loyalty to Paul that would have developed. But there's this other leader, Apollos, who's mentioned here. Uh, he was a, a, a Christian teacher who came in after Paul. Uh, Apollos, he was a high flyer, he was impressive, he was into Greek philosophy that kind of held sway in Corinth. He was very gifted, he was very clever, he was a very good public, speech, public speaker, not like me, um, <laughs> a very good public speaker. Um, he was a much better communicator than Paul. I've often, as I was preparing last night, I was thinking, you know, clearly I'm not like Paul, but like in City on a Hill terms, like I'm the guy who planted the church and, and uh, Paul Schumach, the assistant pastor who's come along and he, maybe he's a much better public speecher than me and so some of you want to get in behind uh, Paul Schumach, but we've got Apollos here who's a guy who, who held sway in Corinth and Paul's not saying that Apollos is a bad guy, 
But it's not hard to imagine that there would be a, a group of people who would line up behind Apollos. Next is Cephas, which is, uh, if you're wondering who's that, uh, that's the Aramaic name for the Apostle Peter. Aramaic was just the, the, the local uh, spoken language of the Jewish people. And, and the fact that it uses uh, the Apostle Peter's Aramaic name suggests that maybe it's the, the Jewishness of Peter, the Jewishness of Cephas, that attracted a following. Maybe Peter was more, well, we know that Peter was more Jewish than Paul in the way that he did stuff. And he was especially more Jewish than Apollos, who wasn't Jewish at all. And I can imagine that this would have appealed to maybe a more conservative crowd in the church, the traditional sector of the church. And then there was the Christ party, the Christ group. Uh, Perhaps these were the people who were trying to remain above it all. Maybe, I don't know, you you know those people who are kind of the holier than thou's. They were saying, we're not into people, we're just into Jesus which is a really good thing to say, but you get the impression that they're saying it in this kind of smug, superior, um, kind of looking down their noses at everyone else sort of way. And so this church in Corinth has split into these factions, and the fences are up, and what started out as personal preferences has now turned to pressure groups and cliques and divisions, and the battle lines have been drawn. Now, it's worth saying I'm not aware of anything like this happening here at Sidon Hill. I'm not aware of the Paul group and the Dave group and the Andrew group. Um, but it's not impossible that this sort of thing could happen. Even if it doesn't happen within a church, this sort of thing definitely happens between churches in a particular place. Congregations line up behind their preferred guru or their denomination or their preferred style and then they rubbish everyone and everything else that's not the same. Well, how does Paul respond to the Corinthians? We're going to see that in this passage, Paul makes two important points. He's actually going to be dealing with this problem right through these first four chapters that we'll be looking at in January and the first week of February, but here he's going to make two points. And the first point is this, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they have everything in Christ. He's going to remind them that they have everything in Christ. Uh, Look at how Paul starts the letter in verse 4. He kind of gets the greetings out of the way. And then this is what he says in verse 4. Verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. With all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Now, it's interesting that Paul, he's writing to such a troubled church, but he he begins in such a positive way, and I think there's a reason for that. Do you notice in those verses the language of abundance that Paul uses? They have been enriched in every way. All kinds of speech, not just some, all knowledge, not just some, not lacking any spiritual gift. In other words, Paul is stating this because he wants these guys to realize they've got everything they need, so what are they fighting over? Why are you quarreling? Why are you divided? You have everything. You lack nothing that really matters. And if you want to bust up because of particular people or particular gifts or particular words of knowledge, Paul says it was all given by God anyway. So why split your church over silly things like personality or style of ministry? Who cares if Apollos is a better preacher? What does it matter that Peter is more Jewish? Since when did the fact that Paul was here first make any difference? Paul is saying this stuff is petty when compared to what you have in Jesus, which is everything. 
And then from uh, verse 13, Paul makes his second point as he deals head-on with their divisions. Uh, And this is all about how they have been saved in the first place. They've been saved by the simple message of the cross. Take a look at verse 13. What does Paul say in verse 13? Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, these are rhetorical questions. Paul is making the point that it was Christ who was crucified for them. It was in Jesus' name that they've been baptized into. And it's all built into the point that, by, that it's by hearing the message of Christ crucified, it's by hearing the message of the cross that they were saved. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, can you see, can you see what Paul is getting at here? In many ways, this is the centerpiece of this section. It's saying that it's the gospel, the good news about Jesus. It is that message that saves people. It is the message of the cross that is the power of God for saving people. It's not preaching styles, it's not personality types, it's not song selection, it's not the quality of the overall show, either good or bad, it's none of that. It's the message about Christ, that is where the action is, says Paul. And to make sure the the Corinthians fully get the impact of this, uh, what Paul does is he now goes on to explicitly mention two things that do not save people. Two things that do not save people, even though they are the two things that people often get most excited about. Uh, verse 21. Verse 21. For since the wisdom of God, sorry, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now, just as a side note, Paul is. Uh, uh, He's talking about foolishness about what was preached, not because he thinks it was foolish. He's just picking up on how the world tends to think about the good news about Jesus. You can go online and, and see Jesus, the message about Jesus mocked as the, the, kind of the, the story about this kind of Jewish zombie and, and people kind of blast Christianity as absolute foolishness. But Paul is saying the message is not foolish. It appears foolish to the world. And so, it's because it appears foolish to the world, it's tempting to underestimate its power. It's tempting to think that you've got to boost the message of the gospel along, to give it a helping hand, that you've got to do something to make it seem more impressive. And so, verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Here are two things that people even today still try to do to help the gospel message along, or so they think. And the first is miracles or signs. Even with Jesus, the Jews were always hassling him to do miracles, weren't they? They wanted a big, spectacular demonstration of God's power. They wanted to see people healed. They wanted to see spiritual forces conquered. They wanted supernatural things to happen. And really, the same expectation or hopes and dreams happen today. If only we could, if only we could show the, the Spirit's power through miracles, then people would believe. You see, miracles, they impress us. Now, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine, if at the end of this talk... I performed a miracle. Imagine I, I, I made that wall disappear. Not just a trick, but I imagine I made it disappear and then I brought the wall back. I made it disappear and we could all walk out and in and out and in and then I brought it back because it would be too windy in here. Um, and imagine if I said, you know what, next week I'm going to do it again. You know what? 
I reckon next week this room would be packed. There'd be people up in the gallery. There wouldn't be a spare seat in the place. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook would be working overtime as people shared what had happened. If you saw, if you saw a miracle and then you were promised that it would happen again next week, then surely you would bust your gut to get as many people in here to see it. Get along to Sinai Hill. This guy has this amazing power of God. He can make walls disappear. I don't know why, but he can do it. It's amazing. It would fill this building. Now imagine if we had someone here each week who was, who was an absolutely brilliant public speaker, not just a public speecher. Um, someone who was simply superb. It was like a TED talk every week. No notes. They paced the stage. They engaged with their eyes the whole time. They told really great stories that connected with your life. It's as though they'd known you your whole life. Uh, and, you know, someone who's witty and entertaining. They got you laughing in the aisles. Great stories. They kept you on the edge of your seat every minute of every talk. They were across philosophy and history. They were a real scholar. They kind of engaged with apologetics with kind of laser-guided precision. But they were also kind of really down to earth. They knew what it was like to be you. And they were handsome. They were easy on the eyes. Dressed in the latest threads. Made, made you feel like church was the place to be. There was kind of zero cringe. You all know what cringe is in church. There was zero cringe. Imagine you had someone like that each week preaching. We'd fill this building all the time. It wouldn't really even matter what they had to say, just the entertainment value would be enough for most people to keep coming back. Paul says, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Are you hearing Paul's point here? To the Jews who wanted signs, to the Jews who wanted miracles, the gospel, the simple message about Jesus, it seemed unexciting. To the Greeks who were into clever, entertaining ideas and speech, to them the gospel seemed a bit simplistic, a bit foolish. But Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, none of the other stuff is needed for people to actually be saved. If anything, those things can be unhelpful. Because when you start to think that you need those other things, when you start to fall into the trap to think, hey, that is where the power of God is, it is in miracles or it is in uh, magnetic personalities, Uh, when you start to think that the power of God is there, then you empty the gospel of its power. God's power is at work through the simple message that Christ was crucified for our sins. And because of that, we can be forgiven, we can be reconciled to God. That is it. That is where the power of God is. And so did you notice what Paul goes on to say about himself in chapter 2, verse 1? In chapter 2, verse 1, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, did you catch that? Paul resolved in himself, he deliberately decided, he consciously chose not to be clever. He actively decided to do nothing more than simply and clearly, not even cleverly, simply and clearly telling them about Jesus. And he did that so that when people were saved, 
and they were, when people were saved, they would see that it wasn't the result of an impressive, persuasive word, it wasn't the result of a sign or a miracle, but it was a result of God's power. God working through the simple message of Christ crucified. Now, do you see where all of this is heading? He's writing to this church that's got themselves all hung up about styles of ministry. I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. Maybe I like singing more songs, I like doing the Lord's Supper more often, I like shorter sermons, I like to be at church with these sorts of people, I like more spontaneity in a service, I like more formality, I like bigger churches, I like smaller churches. And Paul is saying, what are you getting agitated about? None of that stuff saves anyone. It is the message of Christ crucified, which is the power of God. That is what saves people. Now, the lesson for the Corinthians church, that lesson for them is a good lesson for us as well. The message here is is that it's the cross, the simple message of Christ crucified, that that is the message that God uses to save people. That's an important message, that's an important lesson for us to be reminded of, even at a personal level. At a personal level, it liberates us and it motivates us. It means that you don't actually have to be super smart. You don't have to go to a theological college and study a degree. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to be gifted with words to be used by God. You just need to pass on the simple message about Christ and Him crucified. And so that means when someone asks you, why do you go to church? Or when your workmate tomorrow morning asks what you did on the weekend? Or or when you clumsily explain what you believe as a Christian... In that apparent foolish and awkward event, nothing less than the power of God Himself is at work. As you open up about Jesus, you're actually unleashing the power of God to save. Because as Paul says, the power is in the message. The message that we can all share. The power is in the message, not the method. It's great for us to be reminded of that. It's the gospel, the good news about Jesus that saves people, not our giftedness. So be liberated. Go and share that that powerful message, that simple message, that foolish message that Jesus died so that we can be reconciled to God. Don't be silent because you think you need to be persuasive or clever. The power is in the message, not in the person. The power is in the cross, not in the packaging. Uh, But it's also a great reminder for us as a relatively young church. Being young, there's the temptation for us to do whatever we need to do to grow quickly. And if, if in a church that's growing, growth slows, it's tempting to find a way to keep the momentum going, to keep the feeling that progress is being made. And so we can be looking around for things or people and looking around for the magic bullet, the thing that's going to really bring in the crowds, the thing that's going to make it feel like we're still moving forward, as though moving forward is the thing that contains the power of God for salvation. We might be asking, if we did music this way, or if we structured our church that way, or if we were more vocal about these causes that connected with the community around us, or if we ran these programs... Now, all that stuff might have its place, but we're never to forget, at the end of the day, it is only the good news about Jesus that actually saves people. And so, as a church family, where the gospel is being preached and and where we kind of clumsily try and live it out, 
that's not going to be the most amazing church to look at from the outside, to be honest. The church where the gospel is preached and we're trying to live it out, it's going to look, it's going to be filled with pretty ordinary people. Paul even said that about the Corinthians. None of you were particularly special before you heard the good news about Jesus. Ordinary people who are honest about their failures, who are confessing to God their sins and their need for forgiveness, who are sharing their struggles and their burdens, who are persevering with the, the, the thrilling work of, 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 of Bible reading and prayer. Ordinary people who are giving things a go, not because they're amazing at the thing that they're trying, whether it be music or making coffee or kids' ministry or setting up. They're giving it a go because they want to serve the body. Ordinary people who are just talking about Jesus. Now, that sort of church, it may not look amazing from the outside, but that will be a church where the power of God is really at work. See, a powerful church, it's not a flashy building, it's not miracles happening all the time, it's not the most um, magnetic personality leading it. It's, it, it's not great music or a room full of beautiful people. A truly powerful church, says Paul, is a church in which Christ crucified is talked about and clearly explained and people are, come, are invited to come and follow Jesus. Uh, in Pennsylvania, there's a small, more small town called Centralia. You've probably never heard of it. Um, Centralia was said to be an incredibly wealthy town. Uh, it sat on a, a two, uh, 24 million ton seam of coal. Uh, unfortunately, in 1962, um, you know, they had the local rubbish dump. They called the, the fire brigade in to kind of reduce the size of the rubbish dump. And so what does the fire brigade do? They set fire to it. Um, but that fire in the rubbish dump also set fire to the coal seam that was under the town. The fire department arrived and dumped hundreds of thousands of litres of water onto the fire, but every time they thought they'd put it out, uh, it would suddenly burst back into flame again. It's kind of like those tricky birthday candles that you put on someone's cake for a bit of fun. Uh, but this fire just would never go out. And so over time, the, the fire began to work its way along the underground coal seam, after a while, there was kind of smoke seeping out all over town, just coming up out of the ground. People began to notice that the homes, uh, that in their homes, the basement walls were hot to touch. Uh, the, the local service station attendant kind of put his, his, his big pole into the, the petrol tanks and, to test the level of the petrol tank and realized the pole was hot when he brought it out. Uh, in 1981, almost 20 years after the fire had started, a 12-year-old boy was playing in the backyard of his grandma's house uh, when the ground caved in underneath him and a pillar of smoke came up and the poor guy was left clinging to tree roots as he dangled over a 46-metre hole. That's when the town was evacuated. And now, why do I tell you about this uh, quirky town? Well, if you can have that picture in mind, a town that was full of promise, a town that had a bright future, but now there are plumes of smoke coming up everywhere. That's a pretty good picture of what the church in Corinth was like at the time of this letter. Full of promise, but now plumes of smoke, problems appearing everywhere, but it's all coming from the one underground fire. They misunderstood the gospel. They misunderstood the good news about Jesus. They've misunderstood what they now have as followers of Jesus. They haven't thought enough about how it is that they were saved in the first place. 
And so when Paul starts out, he wants to deal with their divisions, to stop their quarreling. He doesn't send them off to a conflict resolution course. He doesn't send them off to mediation. He reminds them of the gospel. And he does this to help them to see that for those of us who are being saved, it is the gospel that is the power of God. So let us never get sick of hearing that it was Christ crucified for our sins. No matter how sophisticated we might think we've become, it's that message that saves. No matter how inadequate you might feel, that's the message that saves people. Let's never get sick of hearing it. Let's never get sick of sharing it. For verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken powerfully through your word, not through my eloquence or anything other than the fact that it is the message about Jesus where your power is found. That Jesus has come into the world and has died so that we might be forgiven for our sins. And that he has been resurrected so we have the promise of new life with you. Lord, we thank you for that powerful message through which we have been saved. And Lord, help us to see that as the power by which you work in this world to save those who come to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.